Would you turn with me to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel? Now I'll read through verse um, 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. That's linear action, and it's literally translated. And so he was coming to Simon. And he said to him, or Simon said, and it's also linear action, and so it's this way literally. And so Simon was saying to him, Lord, you don't wash my feet, do you? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. And Peter was saying to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed, blessed if you do them. The word ministry is a word that means waiting at tables. Or in a wider sense, it means to make provision for bodily sustenance. Or it means the servant of a master. And so a Christian in that sense is a servant of Christ. But his task, however, is also to serve his fellows. And so in the broad expanse of that definition, ministry is waiting on the bodily needs of his fellows. 
And that is the picture of our text. For Jesus rose from his position where he had washed the disciples' feet, where he had ministered or where he had waited upon their bodily needs to say, Did you see what I have done to you? I took a towel and I girded it about myself and I took the lowest place of a servant. Do you know what I have done to you? And then assuming the position of dignity and authority, he said, If I am your teacher and I wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. What I have done to you, you ought to do to others. Now what had he done to them? He had stripped himself of dignity and he had taken the lowest place to serve the highest interest of others. So ought we to do for others. He stripped himself of dignity and ministered. Now some of us have about as hard a time with that word as those disciples in the upper room. The scandal of the upper room was that nobody wanted to minister. And the scandal of the comfortable pew is that everybody wants somebody else to do it. But Jesus taught us a forever truth when he knelt down to wash their feet. And the truth is this, that life is not organized around us and our privileges. We are here to minister. And the posture of the church should be kneeling humility and the adornment of the church should be a slave's towel of servanthood. And it seems to me that our failure to assume the kneeling position of humility and our failure to be adorned with the servant's towel, the slave's towel of servanthood in ministry might be one of the reasons of the failure and the ineffectiveness of the modern church. Jacobson's statement haunts me that if any group or church who claims to believe all that God has said in his book would just face up to their responsibilities to one another and to the world around them in ministry, then the world would be attracted to the shining goodness of God. And the more I look at that statement, the more I believe it. For the world is not so much persuaded to the kingdom as it is attracted to it. And frankly, when I look at that group in that upper room, prior to the time that Jesus knelt down and ministered, there's not really very much about them that's attractive to me. Bickering about place, battling about position, refusing to minister and serve. And frankly, there are some churches I wouldn't join either. 
quibbling and battling over position and place, refusing to minister. The point of this text is that the followers of Jesus minister. And if you will think with me just a minute about ministry, we'll look at it in light of some relevant terms. Number one, ministry is prompted by love and is its proof. Everything Jesus did in that upper room there that night was prompted by love. Boyce in his marvelous commentary on John calls this love on its knees. Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end or without end or limitation. The word is telos in the Greek. It means perfectly. He loved them perfectly. Our language is so impoverished. We have only one word to describe or define the infinite range of love, both human and divine. With the same word, we refer to romance and friendship and the aspirations of good as well as the redemptive action of Jesus on the cross. We call all of that love. But the New Testament is not so impoverished. It has a different word for God's kind of love, that unselfish, outgiving, outreaching grace of love in its highest expression and form. And it's this word that's used here, God's kind of love. But the thing that strikes me about this is that it was John who said that Jesus loved them. Jesus didn't say it. He didn't look at those men reclining around him there at the Last Supper and say to them, you know, gentlemen, you ought to know by now I love you. As a matter of fact, it kind of shocked me when I discovered for the first time that there is not one reference anywhere in the New Testament that Jesus ever looked at anybody and said, I love you. Now, why didn't he do that? Well, I don't know, really. Maybe it was because he didn't want to give us a weasel way out of loving. Maybe it was because he didn't want to set that kind of an example for us so that we could go through life saying to people, I love you, and let that suffice for being Christ-like. No, Jesus chose to love not so much by what he said as by what he did. And so that water basin and that slave's towel girded around him shouts to the world, I love you. I want you to try to imagine yourself in that upper room that night and imagine how you fail as Jesus stands to do for you what you ought to be doing for one another. Imagine how you feel as Jesus takes off the outer garment and girts the slave's apron around him to do what we should be doing but because of our selfishness and our pride refuse to do. Listen to the splashing of the water as Jesus prepares to wash our feet. 
He whom you had seen raise the dead and calm the storm and heal the sick. He who had the aura of God about him moving toward you with a basin in hand to do for you what you ought to be doing for others. Oh, what love. And John was most impressed by it. And so in his little epistle he wrote this. If you have the necessities of life, and you see your brother in need, and you shut up your heart against him, how can you say the love of God is in you? Then he said it, it is there. Little children, let us love not so much in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. For genuine love demands the sharing of fire and bread and water. You know, it sure is hard to convince a dirty world that we love it if we refuse to wash its soil. It sure is hard to convince a hungry man that we love him if we refuse to feed his hunger. It sure is difficult to convince a lost man that we really care if we refuse to share the gospel with him. And so Jesus comes to us and asks that question, demanding all honesty, do you love me? And after he peels away the veneer and the facade, he says then, feed my sheep. Ministry is prompted by love and is its proof. Secondly, ministry requires the ability to see beyond the surface. Verses 5 through 7 are packed with drama. I want you to catch them in the original language. My translation of verse 6 says that Jesus is coming to Simon. Maybe he started with John and he's working his way around the room to Simon. And my translation of verse 7 says that Simon is saying continuous action, half to himself and half to anybody who will listen, you're not going to wash my feet. He's not going to touch me. I imagine your response and mine would be something like this. Okay, Buster, that's the way you want it. That's the way you'll have it. You don't want my help. You don't want my concern. You don't want my ministry. You don't appreciate it. You don't respond to it. That's fine. You keep it. You can have it that way. Not so with Jesus. Did you notice the answer of Jesus to Simon? He said, Simon, you don't understand what I'm doing for you now, but you'll understand it later. You know what the later he was referring to? He was referring to when the cock was going to crow. For Jesus was able to see beyond the surface and he saw beyond the veneer that Peter needed more than just to have his feet cleaned. That's what ministry requires. The ability to see beyond the, beneath the surface, beneath the veneer to the real need. Folks, if you and I are called to a loving ministry of concern, we're going to have to cultivate the ability to see the invisible and to hear what is not being said. Sometimes the belligerent, adamant shouts of leave me alone, I don't need you, are really pitiful cries, please help me, somebody love me. 
every Sunday morning when I see that couple of ours that works with the bus ministry. And they come in with their arms around those little children, walking down the halls with them out here, bringing them into the Sunday school classes. I have to say to myself as I watch them come down the hall, thank God for some people who are able to see beneath the surface. That's what Keith Miller meant when he said, if you're really going to care about people, you're going to have to learn how to move your tender finger along the rim of a man's soul until you find the crack. This interpretation that Jesus exercised, this ability to see beneath the surface, interpretation is personal. My verse 3 says, knowing that all things were given to his hands, were placed in his hands, that means authority, that means sovereignty, that means that Jesus had placed in his hands the authority over all others and all things to make them subservient to him. That's dunamis, that's power. And my verse says that he came from God. He had a commission from God. That's decree. And my verse says that he was going to God. That's destiny. The dunamis, the decree, the destiny. When Jesus knelt down to wash these disciples' feet, it wasn't because he forgot who he was or where he was going. It was in the full consciousness of who he was and where he was going. He didn't forget that he was God and start acting like a servant. He remembered that he was God and wanted to act like him. So that's why he ministered. Have we forgotten who we are? Have we forgotten where we have, from whence we have come? Have we forgotten why we're here? If we've forgotten, you look at that man bit down at the dirty feet of the quarreling to minister to them. That's who we were meant to be, and that's what we were meant to do. Must not forget that. Third, ministry always involves an interruption. And the text says he rose from supper. If you're going to invest your lives in the lives of others, it's going to mean interruptions. And a lot of times, it's being interrupted at, at what you're doing you like to do the best. Now, you can tell, if you don't know already, that I like supper, you know. Has your phone ever rung at supper time? And there is that little cry of need. You know, ministry is no respecter of television. It'll interrupt you right in the middle of Dallas and J.R. and the rest. Has your phone ever rung at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're doing what you want and like to do the best, just sound asleep in the middle of the night? You know, let's face it, folk. Ministry is no eight to five. And it won't schedule. I've tried to put it on a schedule. I've tried to get it on that little Baptist diary 
that they give us, but it just can't be. Ministry is interrupted. And I think Alcoholic Anonymous group have us beat on this a mile. I'm going to share with you what I shared with the Wednesday night crowd about Van Barber. Van is a dear friend of mine. He was an alcoholic for years and years. He's still an alcoholic. He just doesn't drink. He got involved in AA. He was a member of my church in Tulia, Texas. On his 45th birthday, they were going to have a celebration for him. His family was coming in. He knew about it, but it was supposed to be a surprise, but he knew about it. His children were coming in. A party, they were going to have a party. They had a cake. They'd already planned everything, the festivities. He was getting ready, acting like he you know, was just around the house. He was going to be surprised, but he wasn't surprised. About two hours before the dinner at 6 o'clock, the surprise dinner and birthday party, the phone rang. It was that guy again. One of his alcoholic friends. He said, Van, I need your help. Could you come? Van went in, called his wife, said, Honey, I know what you people are, I know what you're planning for me. I know the kids are coming. I know the friends are here. I know you're having party tonight. I'm sorry, but I've got to go. And he left that afternoon to go find his friend, to minister, to care for him. And he drove around till wee hours of the morning ministering. And sometimes that ministry, that interruption comes when we're involved in doing God's things. Did you see? He rose from the Passover meal. Nothing more religious than that. He is doing God's work there. He was involved in what every male, every Jew has to do. Deeply and profoundly religious. Deeply and profoundly theological and historical. Sometimes ministry interrupts God's things. And sometimes ministry interrupts service and the parable and the, of the priest and the Levite who were on their way to perform their religious service is a case in point of that. For wherever there's ministry, there's interruption. And it's costly. Finally, ministry has its own reward. Did you see verse 17? If you do these things, blessed are you. You know what that word blessed means? It means bliss. It means the bliss of God. It means the happiness that God has. It's the deepest kind of happiness. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Bliss of God, happiness in its fullest expression. Happiness is found in the strangest places, isn't it? For who could ever believe or imagine that there would be the bliss of God, the deepest happiness in kneeling down to wash the feet of the quarreling? Who would ever think there'd be any happiness in that? It seems to me, folks, that the happiest people in the world are the ones who ask not, what do I want, but who ask, what is wanted of me? 
I'm not so sure, but I think that the happiest people are the missionaries. I just have a feeling they might be. And they have not detached themselves from the earth and its sorrows and its troubles. They have embraced it. They have embraced earth, the, the earth's sorrow and earth's struggles and they've learned to forget themselves and devote themselves to the ends for which creation's God is working. And they have found that in serving others they have been blessed and they've found fulfillment. Have you found that? It may be that the way to happiness for you is the way of service. We don't need look, we need look no further than this man of our text. And look at his face when he died. And you'll understand that the man who loses his life for others has indeed found the bliss of God. this story and then I'm through. Now you'll understand that I don't use profanity but to but in this story for emphasis. J. Winston Pierce said that one day he was sitting in that chair right there or a chair like it getting ready to preach. His church in South Carolina, one of the largest in the Southern Baptist Convention. Great auditorium. Magnificent furnishings. Marvelous carpeted aisles. Beautiful pipe organ. And it was during the time of the offertory. The offering was being received. And the organist was playing a magnificent piece from Bach. And J. Winston Pierce was sitting there getting ready to preach with his head bowed, his eyes closed in prayer. And he said, I sensed someone standing in front of me. He said, I could smell him for one, you know, one way I knew he was there. And he said, when I looked up, I looked up right into the face of a derelict. He said, I don't know how he got in there, but he seemed awful out of place standing on my carpeted platform in the offertory time. And he said his body reeked with odor. He was disheveled and unshaven. And when he leaned over into my face, said J. Winston Pierce, and spoke, he said, his breath smelled so bad it nearly wilted my beautiful carnation on my lapel. And he said he leaned over into my face and said, Reverend, I'm hungry. What the hell are you going to do about it? It seems to me tonight that this hurting world might be terribly out of place on our carpeted platforms but they but it sure is asking a relevant question when it asks i'm hurting 
I'm dirty. I'm hungry. I'm lost. What are you going to do about it? And I think I might have the answer. Sir, we're going to feed you. We're going to clothe you. We're going to bind up your wounds. And we're going to set you free. And we're going to find the bliss of God when we do it. Would you bow your head with me? Does God speak to our needs tonight? Does he speak to our heart? Does he have a word for us? I wonder tonight, how many lives would be spared? How many homes would be saved? How many lives would be changed if we just would minister? Would you join in this prayer? And then after we've prayed, we'll extend our invitation for a response. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us in Jesus Christ the way we are to live and how we are to, to serve, minister. Forgive us, Father, because we have been guilty of letting somebody else do it, waiting for someone else. Commission us, Father, Help us to be aware, to know who we are, where we come from, where we're going, why we're here. Burden us, Father, with the hurts of your world until we take the slave towel and the water basin. And I pray for that decision that needs to be made tonight for us to be in that position. For I ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'll ask you to stand. Maybe you'd need to come to this invitation. While we sing, you come. <laughs>